Welcome once again to Redemption Hill Church. My name is Raymond. I'm, I'm also one of the pastors here alongside Robert and Chris, and it's really a pleasure to welcome all of you, especially those of you who are with us for the first time. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open those up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Eventually, after a, a pretty long introduction with an announcement, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, and then after that, we're going to skip down to chapter 9 and read verses 6 and 7, Then after that, I'll give you an outline of what the, what the rest of our time will look like. So, here's my somewhat longer than usual introduction. First of all, I want to say congratulations to the Richmond Kickers, for those of you who... The local professional soccer team here captured the second division championship last night with three to one win over Charlotte. And so I know some of you maybe have Charlotte ties. I'm very sorry, but only one team can win, even in soccer. All right, so congratulations. One of our, one of our members or, or regular attenders actually plays for the team. I don't see him here today, but if and when you see Evan the next time, you can thank him for making us all feel like winners. The second announcement that I have is... On September 13th, if you're a college student, raise your hand. Okay, great. It's good to see so many of you. On September 13th, we're going to have a lunch here for college students right after service. And we're just going to have it over there in the cafeteria. Uh, just come and bring your smiles. And we're going to be discussing some of the things that we have here at Redemption Hill available for college students and what we want to do, not just for you, but through you, what we think God wants to do through you on your campuses. And I think that's it for the announcements. Now here's my introduction. Uh, Today is August 30th, 2009. Now most of you know that. That day is special for at least two reasons to me. Now here's why. The first reason is this. This is the fourth anniversary of the day when I first said I love you to my wife Heather. Isn't that neat? Isn't that neat? So we were feeling really happy about that this morning, and we were, you know, we were kind of batting eyelashes at each other and all that sort of thing. But it, I, isn't, that, isn't that really neat to think about it? And I don't know how many of you know our story. There actually is a really neat story behind that that I'm sure Heather would love to tell you. But uh, let's just suffice it to say we dated all of six weeks. Six, six weeks after that, we were engaged. Six months after that, we were married, and the rest, as they say, is, is diapers, so... Two kids later, here we are. The second reason, and this is not so personal or or romantic, but the second reason today is a little bit special is because it's the fifth Sunday of this month. Now, you don't look very excited about that, but we don't get that many of those in a calendar year. Four, maybe at the most five. So we were sitting around and thinking as a leadership, why don't we do something really special with the fifth Sunday when we have those and they come around? And so what we've decided to do is we're actually going to be taking up a special offering on fifth Sundays. Not today, because really three weeks ago, we let you know about an urgent need in Pakistan, and, and you guys responded very well. I'm, I'm very humbled and proud of this little church and what, what God was able to do through us. We were able to give, thanks to your generosity, approximately $5,400 to some needy families in Pakistan. That is going to be able to take care of food, clothing, and shelter for 36 families there in need. And so I just give God a hand for how he caused us to respond. And uh, 
So we're not going to take up a special offering today. What, what we are going to do instead is on November 29th, which is the next fifth Sunday, we usually have some boxes back there in the back where people put their connection cards that Chris spoke about and their, their, their gifts, their tithes and their offerings. And I'll explain what that is in a minute as we go through today's message. But there will be at least one special box back there on that day. And 100% of what you guys put into that box will go out right away to ministries that we have identified and selected as very effective at meeting some of the most urgent needs of the most needy people around us in the city. And so I'm really excited about stuff like that. I don't know how, what gets you excited, but that's the kind of thing that, that gets my blood going. And, and so I hope all of us have a chance to participate in what the Bible calls an act of grace as we reach out to do that. And you know, something else that makes me excited is... The word out there on the street is you can't do that. You can't be a church like Redemption Hill with such a strong commitment to theological and doctrinal content and, and a, a, what people would call a theologically conservative stance on things where you really teach through the Bible and at the same time have a long arm of compassion. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I like when a group of people gets together and God says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow that, that uh, stereotype out of the way. And so I'm, I'm proud to be a part of what God's doing here. I hope you are also. And now I'm going to get into 2 Corinthians chapter 8. By the way, I should mention this before I read. That's going to be the beginning of something that we're calling Hope for Richmond. And you can read more about that on our website on the missions page under local efforts. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 to 9. And then I'm going to skip down and read verses 6 through 7 of chapter 9. I should say this too before I read. Eventually I'm going to read the Bible. But what we're going to do today, as I thought about taking up special offerings, what we're going to do today is something we rarely ever do here at Redemption Hill Church. We're actually going to take a moment to look at something the Bible says about why and how God's people should give money toward the work of the gospel. We rarely do this, but this is something we're going to do today, precisely because of what we're going to read in verse, in verse 1. This passage centers on how God is asking his people to give money, but it's not really about money. He says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the, what? The grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, this passage, as we read from this point, is all about how God wants his people to respond to that grace by giving money. But Paul is very clear here. This is about the grace of God that has come to people resulting in this. And so I, I want you to hear me out because I understand if and when a church gets around to talking about money, a lot of us will put our guards up because we have different experiences with that kind of thing. I'm aware of that. I'm well aware of that, but I I would humbly say I don't think you have to do that this morning. In in fact, hear me out, because I'm sure as you're sitting there and listening, most of you will probably be pleasantly surprised when when I finish telling you how we approach that kind of thing here at Redemption Hill. All right, so uh, let's pray, and then after that we'll read the scripture. So, Father, we're asking you to help us now. Um, Just help us all to understand how we should go about honoring you through the giving of our money to the work of the gospel. How and why we should do that. And do this so that we might bring about that great thing that you've called all Christians to be a part of. That is making you known and loved all throughout the world. And we ask this through the name of your Son, 
Jesus. Amen. Follow me along in your Bibles or on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Skip down to chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man or person should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. With the rest of our time, I want to answer two very simple questions. Why should God's people give money to support the work of the gospel, and how should they go about doing it? Now, I want to take care of the why part very quickly. Why? We just read that, actually, in chapter 8, verse 9. If we can go back to that slide. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this, tells us why we should do this. And he's he's very pointed about the fact that he's not commanding them to do this. He says, I'm not commanding you in verse 6 or 7, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, here's why we as Christians ought to give to to what I believe is the greatest of all causes, that is the, the work of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as we do that, meeting the urgent needs of the most needy people in the world, that is part of the work of the gospel. And so why should we do it? Here's why. As Paul seeks to motivate the Corinthians to give, I want you to notice what he says to them. He does not say, now remember God's rules about money and giving. He says, I want you to do this for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins to point them not to a rule or an arbitrary percentage, or some set amount, but he points them to a person and reminds them of what that person has done for them. That's how he seeks to motivate them. Watch this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he reminds us of the gospel, or the good news of what Jesus did. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He says, look at what Jesus did with his spiritual resources. 
And now, because you understand and remember that Jesus was generous toward you with his life, I'm asking you to be generous toward others with your money. It's that simple. That is how Paul seeks to motivate people to give and the grounds upon which he seeks to do it. Now, that answers the question of why Christians should give. And we can leave it right there and spend the rest of our time on how we should go about doing that. How how many of you appreciate that? Let's just get to how we should do this, right? Now, I, I understand also when you hear how should Christians go about giving money in support of the gospel, uh, there's another question that lingers behind that question. How much? Right? Am I, is that tr- Anybody else? Was, were you thinking that? Anybody? Okay. And that's where people begin to put up their defenses a little bit. But again, let me remind you, I don't think you need to do that. And watch as we walk through the Bible together why, why I say that to you. Let's take a look at the way that people tend to do this. Whenever the issue of how Christians should give comes up, uh, there are two main approaches that you will observe in the teaching that's out there and in the way that Christians approach this. I want to call the first approach the law-driven approach. Okay, the law-driven approach. And on the other hand, I want to say that there is what we call a grace-driven approach to giving. Now, obviously, I'm going to make the case, as we do on our website, for that latter approach, that of grace-driven giving. So let me, let me first talk about law-driven giving and what that looks like. And again, <laughs> I'm making all these disclaimers. Before I do that, if, if after I have described this, you feel like you fall into this camp and into this bucket with the way that you give, that's okay. Don't feel overly bad about that. I mean, this, I am actually, in, in my heart, I feel like I'm kind of in both places depending on when I give or or how it looks. I'd like to think I'm more in the grace-driven side, and I'm always working toward that. But I don't think anyone needs to feel overly bad about what we're saying here. So what exactly is law-driven giving? Well, very simply, as the name seems to say, it is giving that is prompted primarily by a law or a rule. Meaning, if we believe that God has given us a rule which says, here's how you should give or here's how much money you should give, then we take that rule and we say, this is what I need to do to obey and please God, and I keep the rule. Now, this is how most people approach the practice of tithing. That's what I had mentioned earlier about what people put in those boxes. Now, I'm very careful to say that this is how most people approach the issue of tithing because it is possible to tithe, which is to give the first 10% or the first tenth of your income to the Lord for the work of the gospel. It is possible to do that in a grace-driven way. So there is no law against tithing. All right? now, the question that remains for us is, is there a law today which says that Christians are duty-bound to do that? Now, let's look at where tithing comes from in the Bible. If I've, if I've put this on the slides early enough, or if Chris DeRocco has put them on early enough, we have a case here in Genesis chapter 28. The first time we actually see tithing in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, when Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, however you pronounce that. That story is also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 7, and we won't go through those this morning. You can read them on your own. What we will do is look at this story from the life of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. In chapter 28, verses 20 through 22 of Genesis, the Bible says this, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, 
Then the Lord shall be my God. How very nice of Jacob to cut this deal with God. Lord, if you do this, then I'm okay with making you my God. Right? You ever cut a deal with God like that? God, if you do, I'm being serious now. God, if you do this for me, I'll come back and I'll serve you. Yeah, less laughter when you, when you point that out. But let's, let's go back. It's always more funny when it's someone else, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that the case? All right, so let's get back to Mr. Jacob here and laugh at him. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, it's about to get more and more silly, but this means something back then. Don't laugh at him. This stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. Now, we don't do that today. We set up many stones, call it a building, and say this will be God's house. Right? We don't do one stone. We get lots of them together. So, again, we're not so different from Jacob, are we? I, just, I love this. All right, here we go. This stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And I'm sure God was overjoyed. Jacob, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Because I, I didn't know what I was going to do, how I was going to pay the utilities this month up in heaven. It's pretty bright up here. Have you all read about this stuff? And so... I'm sure he was very appreciative. Well, this is Jacob saying, I will tithe. Now, what I want to point out is, notice that this is voluntary. Do you notice that? Tithe, as we first see it in the Bible, tithing is voluntary. Now, it is true that this ultimately became something that worked its way into God's law, which he made binding upon his people. And if we have that famous passage that you have probably all heard a million times from Malachi chapter 3, whenever someone wants to threaten you with a curse for not giving enough money. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, God says to the people of Israel through Malachi, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. And if, if God looks at you and says, You're robbing me, you, you're, that's not good news, right? So, so very quickly you're going to say, But wait a minute, how... How do we rob you? We didn't know we were robbing you. How have we been robbing you? That's what Israel says. And God responds. He says, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And without getting too far into this, notice here that God is saying there's a direct connection here between your unwillingness to bring the full tithe according to my law into the storehouse of the temple, and the fact that your nation is under a curse. And I should point out, I'm sure there were people back here, individuals who were tithing. Uh, But B says, the whole nation of you haven't done this, therefore you're under a curse. Now, there is a sense in which God deals with us individually, but also collectively. Uh, Now, here's the big question. Here's the million-dollar question. Is that principle of tithing still a law which God makes binding upon His people today who are under the new covenant of grace having come to faith in Jesus Christ. Is, is that something particular to the nation of Israel that was binding upon them or is it still a law that God's people are duty-bound to keep today? Well, I don't know. If, do we have this slide, Chris? No, we don't have this slide. I toyed with the idea of putting a blank slide up here. And I was going to say to you when that blank slide came up, Here are some biblical passages which support the idea that tithing is still a law that Christians are duty-bound to keep. And I was going to point to a blank slide, and and you would probably have gotten a good laugh at that. So I did my best to recreate it for you without having it up there. Uh, But 
But I will, I will say this. It is my honest and sincere opinion, my studied opinion for years now after looking at the Scriptures that there is no law anywhere in the Bible which says that this principle of tithing is a, a law that God enforces upon His people today. Just like everything else which happens for us when Jesus comes and dies upon the cross, what we find is, is what we read about in Romans chapter 6. In verse 14 there, Romans chapter 6 verse 14, I didn't put that on the slide, but Paul says there, sin will no longer be your master. For those of you who know it, you can finish it with me because you are not under law but under grace. So interesting, here's the thing. If I look at a group of Christians like this and tell them you are not under any legal obligation to give the first 10% of your income back to God for the work of the gospel, somebody will look at me and say, don't tell them that. Don't tell them that. If you give Christians that much freedom, they will go in the other direction. They won't, they won't give as much to the work of the gospel as they would have if it was a rule given to them that they had to keep. So don't tell them how free grace actually makes them. Just kind of tell them enough about grace that they get a sense of freedom, but make sure you keep that chain of the law there when they want to run away in the other direction. See, we don't do that here. Grace has to be grace. Grace has to be grace. It has to be by itself. There's no grace plus law. That's not grace anymore. Are you all with me? And the interesting thing about Romans 6.14, I wish I had put it up here for you, is Paul says, sin shall not be your master anymore. In other words, you will not go in the wrong direction. You will not go away from God now that I have removed this law from you and put you under grace. In fact, he says, far from taking you out from under the law and putting you under grace, far from that causing you to go in the wrong direction. Watch what Paul says. Look at, look at it in your Bible so you, you don't think I'm making it up. He says, sin shall not be your master because you are no longer under the law but under grace. Far from that being the cause of you going in the direction of sin... Paul says, when I take you out from under the law and put you under grace as it actually exists from God, sin begins to lose its power over your life. Precisely because I have taken you out from underneath this law, which arouses, Romans 7, your sinful passions, and I put you under grace, and now there's no law for your sinful nature to grab onto. There's nothing saying you can't do this, because if you so much as tell me I can't eat a cookie before dinner, what am I going to do? Oh, come on, some of you go with me. You're going you're gonna, to... If I tell that to Kira or Brianna, if I say Brianna, she's only... almost nine months old. And if she somehow were mentally capable of this, I know for sure with my two-and-a-half-year-old Kira, if I say, Kira, you cannot have a, a cookie before dinner, she may have had no thought in her mind before that point to eat a cookie. But as soon as I say that, what happens? Man, she will search the house for a cookie until she finds it so that she can eat it. Why? Because she's sinful. And sinful people have to sin, especially when they're given a law that they can sin against. That's why when the speed limit goes from 55 to 60, you go from 60 to 65. (laughs) Are you all with me? That's why you do that. Now, I don't know why else you thought you did it, but that's why you do it. And the Bible helps us to understand this. So I forget where I am. Where am I on this thing? Law-driven giving. 
Does anybody know where I was in my thoughts? Let me check my notes here. I'm serious. If anybody knows, tell me. Thank you so much. There's no law that requires us to give anymore. So having said that now, what do we do? I mean, how then should we give? I mean, how does this work and and how much? Let's answer that question. Here at Redemption Hill, at least, the way that we encourage people to give, which I believe is very consistent with what the Bible teaches, is we encourage people to give in a grace-driven fashion. All right, so now we're moving from law-driven giving to grace-driven giving. Now, what does grace-driven giving look like? Well, obviously, I can't tell you here are the rules. Can't do that, right? But we can speak about certain guidelines, all right? And these are some of the guidelines that I certainly live by in my own life and, and that I would certainly encourage anyone to live by uh, who, who wants to understand how to give with freedom and joy. We encourage people, among other things, to give regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully. Regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully. Now, let me show you from the Bible why we encourage people to do that. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 2. You'll see here that there's encouragement for us to give regularly. Paul, in another letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church, says, Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So we have reason to believe that this is something that Paul gave to all the churches he helped to plant and pastor. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up. And then he says, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. All right, so there was an idea here that people would purpose ahead of time in their minds to give to others, people other than themselves, and when the time or the opportunity came to give, like say on November 29th, they would bring what they had purposed in their hearts to give and that would go out to people who needed it even more than they did. And so we are called to give regularly. How regularly, specifically for you? Again, you decide. I I do it every time I get paid. That's what I would encourage all of you to do. It's just easier that way, administratively. But again, I'm not going to give you a rule rather a guideline. So we're, we're called and encouraged to give regularly. We're also called and encouraged to give sacrificially. Now, now the fact that God removes from us the law that we have to give a fixed amount, like 10%, doesn't mean that he removes from us that thing which, which, which carries itself all the way through the very center of the Christian life. And that is that we live sacrificially. When Jesus said, in order to be my disciple... If you read Luke 14, he says, if, if anyone cannot give up all he has, he cannot be my disciple. It's, it's in there. It's in your Bible too. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. And that cross is the, the, the symbol of the fact that we are making the ultimate sacrifice of not just our money, but our life to follow Jesus because we think he's that worthy. And so uh, trust me here, that cross is not going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, hey, buddy, don't worry. I'm not going to mess with your money. It doesn't do that. It calls you to sacrifice. And I would encourage you to think of it this way. When I married Heather, all of my money became Heather's money. Not just a part of it. It wasn't just like I made a sacrifice. Okay, I'm being joined to you so you can have some of my money. All of my money became hers. Her name is now on everything that I own. That's how it should work with Jesus. 
When you come to Jesus and you're one with him, his name is now on everything that we own. We're not really owners anymore, but we're managers or stewards of what he possesses. And that usually makes people nervous, but, but only because they don't really know Jesus very well. You only get nervous of that because you haven't really gotten to know Jesus so well to know that he actually cares about you more than you care about yourself. Do you see what I'm saying here? So I hope you're starting to see this message is not so much even just about money, but ultimately we'll bring it around. It's, it's really about getting to know Jesus and the grace of God that comes through him. So stick with me here. We're called to give regularly and sacrificially. Uh, I should say something more about that before I go on to cheerfully, but w- what does it look like when you're actually giving sacrificially? Well, I think that's one of the good things about the principle of tithing. Uh, for, at least for Heather and I, or I should say for Heather and me, we, we in order to give 10%, we, that's a sacrifice for us. It makes a dent in the rest of our lifestyle. There are certain things that we would probably like to have that we are no longer able to purchase for ourselves because we give that amount. And we actually, we actually go beyond that. Um, you know, I don't want to say too much about how much we do because some of you might be tempted to make that a pattern in your own lives and that's not necessary. We, that's what we do in response to the grace of God. But we... We go above and beyond that, and, and it's a joy for us. It's an absolute joy, <clears throat> an absolute joy for us. We love doing that. And so we give, we're giving sacrificially. I think a good way to test whether or not you're doing that is to say, uh, after I have given this, does it, does it in any way cause me to rethink the rest of my lifestyle in, in my life? I thought about a, an idea of, uh, I, have two, I have two vehicles. One is a van, a minivan, and the other is a Honda Civic. And uh, if we're taking a trip as a family in the minivan, I don't have to think about how I pack anything. I, I have to pack stuff for the kids and then for Heather and then for myself. I never have to think about how much I pack for myself because there's so much room in that van that there's all the room in the world that I need. If we're taking that same trip in the Honda Civic, it's different. After I've put in what I need to put in for other people, like my kids and my wife, I've got to really think about how much I take for myself because it just won't fit. Let that be a picture of sacrificial giving. The idea here is that after we have given to others, first God and then others, what we have left to consume upon ourselves is is less and we have to actually think about how we're going to do that. Right? And, and so if, if you're giving to God or to the work of the gospel in such a way that it really doesn't make a dent in anything else about how you would give to yourself or, or whatever you want to do, then I would encourage you to, to, what an encouragement, you can probably do more. You can probably do more to get to what we would call sacrificial giving. And for some of you, bless you, for some of you, less than 10% is probably a huge sacrifice. You know, so that's why I love these guidelines is we don't have to talk about fixed amounts or percentages. You, you, you sit before God and let the Holy Spirit tell you what you ought to give. Is that a good guideline? All right. So regularly, sacrificially, and finally, we should give cheerfully. Now let's look again at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Is this helping anybody? I know, I know there are questions that come up because this is actually going against, for me at least, years of what I heard in churches. And so I understand you don't have to rush to any decisions about what you believe now. We'll have time for you to process it. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 7, in verse 7 especially, we're told each man should give 
what he has decided in his heart to give. Now, here's how we are not to give. Not reluctantly. Which is exactly what happens when someone puts a rule before you and says, now you have to keep this. Bless you. Nor under compulsion. Which is exactly what happens when someone puts a rule before you and says, you are compelled to keep this. That's what that means. Uh, But instead, we are to give as we have decided in our hearts to give, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you are giving simply because you feel compelled by a law, I promise you that what is implied in this verse is true. It is, it is a hindrance in your ability to give cheerfully. Look at this. The reason God does not want us to give reluctantly or under compulsion to something like a rule or a law is because of what he loves. Which, by the way, is interesting. Every you shall not in the Christian faith is there because of what God loves. Did you know that? It's because God loves something else. Now, the reason God does not want us to give reluctantly or or under compulsion to some kind of rule is because He knows that detracts from our ability to give cheerfully and He loves a cheerful giver. And God is all about ordering the world so that He gets what He loves. Did you know that? He's all about ordering your life so that he gets what he loves. And you're all about ordering God so that you get what you love. In this corner we have you, and in this corner we have God. I'll let you figure out how that one ends. All right? So, so God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. I'm part serious when I say these things, but that's okay. That's a, I, it is funny. God loves a cheerful giver. All right? Now... Giving regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully is what we are called to, among other things. Giving responsibly. Uh, don't give so much that you no longer have anything to put on the table for your kids. All right? don't, don't give uh, with other people's money. Do you understand? I mean, there are some places that encourage people to give uh, other people's money with credit cards, and, and then they have a hard time paying that back, and they have to pay interest. We, we obviously wouldn't do that here, but don't do that. Don't do that. I can't tell you how angry I got once sitting in a church where I heard that. Uh, Livid. I was so angry. But anyway, we want to give cheerfully, regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully. Now, here's, I guess here's the next $2 million question. How do you do that? How all of a sudden do you begin to give cheerfully? What if I make that a rule and say, now give cheerfully? Can you feel the fact that you cannot make yourself do that? Here's the good news. Everyone gives regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully to something. So I'm actually not asking you to do anything that you're not currently doing. I may at the very most be asking you to divert where it is you give regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully to, I'm missing, a, I'm missing a preposition there, the place to which you give regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully. Let me give you an illustration that helped me out a whole lot. Let's take a guy, for instance. Let's say this guy loves, above all things, luxury and entertainment. Well, every time he gets paid, notice every time, regularly, He looks forward to spending large amounts of his money, sacrificially, on the items and symbols that add meaning to his life in his eyes. 
And so he sees no problem. He doesn't even, I mean, he doesn't even balk at the, at the thought of spending $500 or $1,000 in one night at a bar or a club on, on people he's never even met. Why? Because that brings him pleasure and a sense of luxury and entertainment. And, and there are other things which add to this, his, his cars, his yacht, whatever the case is for him, whatever it is for him that does this, he has no problem giving regularly, sacrificially, and oh, when he does it, he does it cheerfully. You and I have something that falls into that category. We do. Everyone does. Because that is what worshipers do, and human beings are worshipers. There's no exception. Worshippers give regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully to the things that mean the most to them, that they love the most. Really, we could say to the things or to the people that they worship. That's what you do. You give yourself, including your money. Now, let's take that same guy. I'm talking now about how it is we begin to give regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully to the work of the gospel. Take that same guy. And one day, a young woman walks into his life. He's captivated with this young woman. His heart is captured. And all of a sudden, he finds a new person or a new direction into which to steer his regular, sacrificial, cheerful giving. He begins to take her out on very nice dates. It goes so well that he begins eventually to think about proposing to this young woman and he wants, to, he wants to do this right. So he begins researching and he's not even looking at engagement rings until, until they reach the $10,000 limit. I mean, this guy wants to put something on her finger that literally could cause her to sink to the bottom of a, of a pool. And so he, he, here it is. He, that's what he's going for. Sacrificial. Cheerful. Before meeting her, not even a thought that he would divert some of what he was giving elsewhere in another direction. What happened? The answer to that question is what happens, is what needs to happen to us. If we are going to give regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully to Christ and the work of the gospel. He has to come into our lives in a way that captures our hearts. Are you all with me? He has to come in. I told you I wasn't really talking about money here. I'm talking about what Jesus does when he comes into a human being's life and bestows upon that human being life-changing grace. That's why Paul said, I want to tell you about the grace that God gave the Macedonian churches. Because he couldn't start that passage by saying, I want to tell you about the money the Macedonians gave to other people. Well, great, Paul. We'll wait until you get to the next chapter. Nobody wants to hear about, the world is not standing on its tiptoes because of how much money you give to people. But it is standing on its tiptoes because of how much grace God is giving to sinners like us. Are you all with me? And so, so Jesus comes into our lives the way this young lady came into that man's life. And what begins to happen there is that all of his values and priorities are reordered. They're put in the right order because of what a man in the, in the mid-19th century named Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. 
it kicked out of the number one spot and the number two spot what did not belong there. It's almost like if you watch the, the college football rankings, the top 25 or whatever the case is. A team can be there for four weeks, but all of a sudden something happens and, and down it goes to number 10. Just like that. The expulsive power of a new undefeated team. The expulsive power of a new affection. Let me read you something that Thomas Chalmers said, and I'll, we'll end with this quote as we pray. In his sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, which, by the way, is, is a very good read. I encourage all of you to read it online. I just read it in preparation for this, and it, it, I thought it was wonderful. If we have that slide, here's what Thomas Chalmers said. It is seldom that any of our tastes are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. But what cannot be dis- destroyed may be dispossessed. And one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. For instance, a young man may cease to be the slave of his appetite for youthful pleasures, not merely because he has grown out of it, but because a manlier taste has now brought it into subordination. He ceases to idolize pleasure because the idol of wealth has gotten the ascendancy in his heart and he is now mastered by the love of money and power. Likewise, the love of money and power may also cease to have mastery over his heart if he is drawn into politics and mastered by a desire to support a noble cause. Now note, there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but as to its desire for having some object or another, This is inconquerable. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart. To tear away one affection without the substitution of another in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to dispossess our hearts of the affections which hinder us from being generous to the degree that God would want us to be generous is the expulsive power of a new affection for the man Jesus Christ. Which is why we don't stand up here and ask you for money very often. Which is why we don't stand up here and give you rules that say, stop sinning, stop doing this, don't do that, don't watch this, don't buy that, don't play this. We don't do that. Do you know what we do instead? We present Jesus to you every week. The only working strategy for delivering human hearts from the propensity to go in the direction of sin away from God. I I want you, we want you to be a church that says what those, those two men said as Jesus was entering Jerusalem ultimately to go to the cross. They came to some of his disciples and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. We want to be that kind of church. 
that you would come in here every single week and put upon us as leaders and, and, and musicians and everyone else that leads any aspect of this ministry to put upon us the pressure of, of saying, here. Say, we want to see Jesus and then let, make us give you Jesus. That's what grace-driven giving is about. That is what we encourage here at Redemption Hill. Not something where it's an arbitrary percentage, but something where we give, yes, regularly, yes, sacrificially, but oh, cheerfully. Why? Because that's what God loves. And we just want you to do what God loves. Why? Because we love God. How is that going to happen? Only when Jesus comes into our life and dispossesses our hearts of any other affection that is taking his rightful place. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that you would just help us to to really get what you have said to us today through your word. By your Holy Spirit now, move throughout the room and just touch each person's heart and mind. And if, if we won't hear a sound, but I just pray that if there are any chains of legalism and legality or law-driven, not just giving, but law-driven approaches to life, I pray that you would, you would cut those chains now and let them fall to the ground. And I pray that we would be able to rise from that place with new freedom, new joy, and the, the ability to not only give our money cheerfully, but to give our lives cheerfully to you and to others, just like Jesus did. And we ask this through the name of your great son, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen.